Hello listeners, this is Zine, and you're about to listen to a fascinating conversation between myself and historian of Afro-Brazilian women's history, Cassie Ose. This is a two-part interview. The first half, we'll be talking primarily about her research, uh, and the second part, we'll make perhaps a slightly unexpected turn to talking about Sailor Moon. And I actually think this is very deeply related in terms of thinking about relationship to archives and also Cassie's own ingenuity as historian and historian making. So again, stay tuned, enjoy part one, and look forward to part two. Like, if a guest is on and they're like, hey, can I curse? Because they're like in mid-sentence, they're like, oh, can I curse? It's not okay. And they're like, yes, of course. <laughs> so you should know. <laughs> You know, I don't know. I've this is like my second academic, um, or I guess not academic, but like tethered to the academy, like podcast episodes. So like, ah, okay. Um, I always just want to like make sure before I start talking because I don't know. It's also weird to like have been of the audience of PhDivas for so long, but like. <laughs> Now it's like, oh, okay, I, I'm i in a different moment now than I was when I started listening. So The meta moment, the, the whole what, uh, long-time listener, first-time interviewee, as it's they say on the radio. Very, it's very cute. It's giving, like, NPR. <laughs> well, I guess maybe at this point it's good for me to do a quick introduction. Um, if listeners don't already know, you're listening to PhD of his podcast, and I'm one half of the podcast representing the humanities, Dr. Zainyao. Um, and the other half is Dr. Liz Wayne, who couldn't be with us today. But as I, I just said, we're very excited to have a longtime listener, um, longtime supporter, Dr. Cassie Ose on, um, who is, during the time of listening, made her own trajectory as a PhD diva, where Cassie has defended... Uh, managed to even upload it according to the you know Byzantine system of formatting. That is what people don't tell you. It's not as like it's difficult enough to write the thesis over X number of years, but then to actually sufficiently submit it for university accept it requires a whole other rigmarole of paperwork and hoop jumping. So congrats on that. And Cassie has a job ahead of her. So Moment of applause, hopefully, for, for Cassie. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. On top of the deposit being a Byzantine experience, we also had to pay to deposit at my institution. Wait. What? Wait. Sorry. Give me a moment. This is... <laughs> How much do you have to pay? Also, what is the justification? Do, does it mean they even print the copies out for you? Or no? Wait. No. It literally is you pay to deposit into the, the what is it called, the directory or the archive for like internet copies of your dissertation. That's it. So you're paying to, for open ac- to it be, you're paying for it to be open access, basically? Not even that, because it will be open access whether we decide to um, have it um, be immediately open or we like embargo it for two years like it will eventually become open access like at my university you could do a thing where you like embargo it perpetually but you have to do it every two years but um no it's just to make money that's it yeah mm-hmm. if you choose to upload it to ProQuest you can do that 
um, but it's a separate question from uploading to the university. They just want to make money. That's it. Like, I always joke that, like, the University of Illinois is like the Mitch McConnell of our wants because they're just (laughs) transparently evil (laughs) in what they do. (laughs) That is very evocative. That is alarmingly evocative. Uh, I guess this is a moment where I should also pause and allow you to introduce yourself. So as people may have deduced, uh, Cassie is at Illinois, but but, but how would you describe yourself, your discipline, your backgrounds? Um, Okay, so my name is Cassie Say. she, her, hers, pronouns, um, they, is also, they, them is also fine. Um, I would consider myself, wow, I'm doing a introduction. <laughs> um, well, I guess the academic version of me is um, I am a historian of 20th century Latin America, particularly um, Brazil, and I focus on the history of Black Brazilians and um, uh, the history of like Black social mobility. That's what my dissertation was about. It was about Black perspectives on social mobility as a process in the city of Sao Paulo. Um, and particularly using Black knowledge production as a way to engage that. Um, I will be the incoming professor, assistant professor of history at Bucknell University, which is located in central Pennsylvania. Um, I guess like the non, the way that I see myself outside of academia is um, a person who has lived many lives, but really enjoys video games and anime and comics and um, aerial and pole arts and nachos. I mean, that's what sums me up. <laughs> <laughs> and um, is wearing an absolutely fabulous out- vintage outfit that she's describing to me earlier, which for, since you can't see it, I'll have to describe this wonderful pastel uh, ensemble that's also metallic and slightly like psychedelic it feels like in some ways it's like very 2000s aesthetic in terms of like how metallic it is yeah i i do like i like clothes a lot um i would say that my fashion sense is like um i don't know if anybody remembers like that stupid meme where it was like from like high femme to like stone cold butch but like the i love that meme <laughs> yeah like i think one like it was like a kind of femme it wasn't quite high femme but it was like jigglypuff kind of like I'm like that like I'm a jigglypuff femme I like to have fun with things I like throwbacks to like pop culture references that I like came of age through um I make zines and I've been blogging for most of my life (laughs) so um inconsistently but yeah that sums me up quite well Mm -hmm. and indeed i i remember that part of your twitter handle is lofem theory yes which i think is a really important note i mean maybe a good transition to talking about your work is precisely through that like 
because you work on like Afro-Brazilian history and also um, and feminism, is there a way that your low femme theory and embodiment uh, engages with your work as a historian as well? Do you feel like they inform each other? Um, I'm sure that they do. Sometimes it's not really clear to me how, because I think um, the academic work that I do, it does have a linkage to my like personal life experience, but in, I don't know, the way it began is way different than what it is now. And how it began was I became interested in Brazil on accident. I wanted to, I was like a pre-pharmacy major. It ended really badly. Um, I got kicked out of school for bad grades. And then I came back um, with like lots of like help and mentorship support. I've talked about this on Twitter before. Um, And I thought that I was going to be a historian of like US like post civil rights because I was born and raised in Kansas and I was really interested in colorblind ideologies as a form of racism. Um, I wanted to understand that, like, what is it like to go about your life having this burden of trying to prove something is going on when everybody insists that it doesn't because it's not explicit. So that's what I thought I was going to work on. I was going to work on like desegregation and like far right, like multiculturalism. Um, And then in 2012, Brazil was like on the map. Like there was like BRICS hysteria, like the Scientists Without Borders program, which was like funded through the Workers' Party. That's like Lula's political party. was like they were sending students from Brazil all over the world. Um, And so that year I needed a language and I just randomly took Portuguese because I liked the way it sounded. I had no intention of like continuing it. In the U.S., you need a a language generally to graduate with a BA in history. And so I took a course... On in beginning Portuguese, and at the same time, I was taking a course on um, the history of like Africans and their descendants in colonial Latin America. And one class, um, I was like really confused because we would watch like these old um, films of like music concerts, and there was like this black guy named like Gilberto Gil. Um, I think he would be like the equivalent of like a Bob Dylan in the United States, although all of his contemporaries and the music movement that he created, Tropicalia, um, would all be Bob Dylan types, I guess. And I noticed that the audience watching him was integrated and like the white people were like clapping for him. And I was like, so this is at the same time as like the civil rights movement in the sixties. And I was like, why aren't they like agitated or anything? And my instructor was like, Oh, Brazil's like a multicultural democracy. And I, I had like a visual like memory that there were black people in Brazil. But when I was younger, I, 
And I think people talk about this a lot these days that for a lot of Americans, like it doesn't click that like black Latin Americans are a thing. You Mm -hmm. tend to think of them as something else because like the domain of being black is either you're in the United States or you're in Africa. Um, So it didn't click for me. And I was just like, well, I don't have any reason to not believe her. And then in the other class, we were learning about processes of slavery and like miscegenation and all of these things. And um, I learned that Brazil was the last country in the Western hemisphere to abolish slavery. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, how are they saying that it's a racial democracy? Um, like there's no racism there or whatever in one class. And then they're the last country to abolish slavery. So And that was also during the Obama years where everybody was like, we're post-racial or something. Um, So I really tried to explore that. So that's all to say that it began as a way to like explore my upbringing and my personal issues with like racism and engaging racism, like the subtle kind and like the outcomes of it. And then I think like, where it is now um i would say that when i understand like my low femme theory it's not even necessarily in contrast to like high femme i actually put low femme theory as like a play on words of like a tribe called quest's album um the low end theory um But I just put, like, femme in there because I was like, it's mine. Um, But I think, like, in relation to my childhood and being on the internet for so long and the way that you just know, you learn how to look for things really equipped me as, um, as a researcher And also because I have a multitude of interests. So I, it's kind of hard for me to be like friends with just one type of person because I love all types of people and I love all types of things. Um, so I think that gives me a flexibility to think about my research from different angles. So. I did do archival work and like traditional archives, but I found a lot of my materials in university archives or city archives, um, museum archives, places that you wouldn't think necessarily to find resources on my topic, not because um, Black people don't exist in archives in Brazil. It's just that it's a little bit trickier because for a long time, you were not going to, if you wanted to find Black people in police records, it's not like in the U.S. there would be like a folder that's like African-American, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to be really creative to like locate the type of sources that you were seeking. Um because they're not so, categorized by race? Is that why? Sorry. Um, for a long time, not really. You would have to think like, if I wanted to think about Black cultural traditions, I would need to look up like an archive surrounding like Samba 
or like Afro-Brazilian religions. And you could probably find that like in a surveillance type of archive, like the police or whatever. Um, But it's not going to literally say black people. (laughs) Um, And that's for a variety of reasons we could talk about later. But um, there was that. And then the, because I was interested in black women, you multiply those issues by like a thousand because there's not going to be an archive catalog that's like black women for any reason. So how was I going to find them? And um, I turned to oral history and I had to rethink the collections that I was, I had previously dismissed as well as like doing my own interviews. So. there is, there are a bunch of oral histories dedicated to the centennial of the abolition of slavery in 1988. And a lot of the researchers, a lot of whom were not, not exclusively, but many of them were not Black. Um, they were thinking about the question of Black history in terms of its relationship to slavery, or at least like post-abolition. Whereas the work that I'm trying to do is I'm interested in like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, like this moment that is generations upon generations removed from slavery and not to diminish um, the relevancy of slavery, but just to say, if we move out of this projection that slavery is connected to everything, um, how can we better understand the motivations for a group of people who are trying to um, move through their their circumstances within a social mobility framework? How do they understand that? Um, And what do they have to say about it? So for a long time, I ignored a lot of those oral history collections because they were like about slavery or the memory of slavery. I was like, I'm not researching slavery. But then I realized, especially after a hint from a friend of mine, she, or sorry, they, they told me, oh, well, they're taught, they're focusing on multiple generations of the same family. So just read it and see what you might think. And what I realized is that for a lot of the people who are being interviewed, they weren't even talking about slavery. Okay. Because a lot of them didn't have any memory of it, or it was vague because they themselves were not enslaved. Maybe few of them had been enslaved. Um, Most of them, they were like the children of parents who had been enslaved, or the children of great of grandparents or great grandparents who had been enslaved. So they used the interviews to actually talk about themselves and their own lives. And in one such collection, the researchers, they left behind field notes. And some of them who had conducted the interviews would say, oh, well, it doesn't seem like they have any, they're like out of history because they don't narrate um, their lives regarding like important things like um, the coup of like 64 or Getulio Vargas or all of these like political history moments. They're talking about like marriage, children, and um, 
the deaths of people. And I was like, well, that's an odd way of framing Wait, <laughs> what, what is, is important. What is what history? Yeah. yeah, what is history? What is not? And so I became more interested. And I started reading their work closely. And I was like, no, they're talking about work. They're talking about what it takes to make a living when they complain about remembering a strike or um, the price of food and inflation. They're talking about um, the economy. And that's valuable. And so, you know, I think it developed into there and um, I'm not being very articulate about this because as soon as I deposited I put my project out of my mind. <laughs> You're but, doing wonderfully. But, so I don't, you have nothing to apologize for. Yeah, but um, thank you. But uh, yeah, I, I think that me knowing my way around the internet gave me um, transferable tools to do my own research. And that's because I love and am interested in a lot of things. And, um, yeah, I, I see low femme as like an aesthetic as not in opposition to high femme, like I have my high femme moments too. But I think it's more about like, knowing how to move between the analog and the digital mm. as like a skill set. And now I'm coming back to where that leads to me. Because as a kid growing up, I because of that whole colorblind weirdness of Kansas, I didn't feel like I related to a lot of people, or I always felt like my life was going to begin at a much later date. And so I would like throw myself into the internet, and I would just try to learn as much as I can. And, you know, I joined a lot of communities. And um, by trying to like, have an articulated notion of myself. I sought it through being invested in all of these different types of interests that I had. Um, so yeah, I think that's where they connect. That makes sense to me. So it's low femme theory, not just as aesthetics, but as a methodology. And there seems to me with what you're saying that there's also something about registering like nuances of life that in a way that that parallels the internet life that you had and what you're also then noticing in the archives that were being unacknowledged by other historians, like the historian perhaps division between like what is capital H history versus like a little H history seemed very analogous to your own explorations of what mattered to you um, in life. Absolutely. So like, um, my disclaimer is that I am not, uh, an expert of like internet history beyond my own experience but like the notion that like black people were not on the internet before like black twitter like there were hella black communities on the internet it's just that they were not visible to non-black people <laughs> until black twitter showed up you know um so when you have that knowledge, it forces you to ask different questions and make different considerations. And I think like, whether it's like femme identity, particularly queer femme identity, um, 
black womanhood, things of those types of identities, you're always forced to ask different questions because you are positioned out of space and out of time. And also this, because of that, people arrive at the question similar to what um, Sadia Hartman brings up in Venus and Two Acts, like, are Black women just inherently invisible in archives? And what becomes the question of or recovery if that doesn't really solve the problem? So related to talking about uh, Black womanhood, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw you do this wonderful roundup of ways that uh, Black women outside of the U.S. have been thinking about what has been called by uh, uh, Crenshaw, for instance, intersectionality. But that, as you're pointing out, there much there have always been like these other histories of Black women variously around the world have been theorizing what we call Black feminism or thinking about like race and gender together. And of course, you started by talking about like your your work on like Afro-Brazilian feminists and perhaps uh, Mariel Franco's the name that might be most familiar to people. I was wondering if you'd like to talk a little bit about that thread. Yeah, I'm not sure if I remember. Okay. (laughs) I'll still answer your question. um, Because I think I've answered it before in other venues. But I know that people tend to credit Crenshaw, not necessarily like she did for sure, term intersectionality. And the theory of it is definitely hers. And um, Matrix of Oppression, um, Patricia Hill Collins. And I think Angela Davis had something somewhere, but I don't remember what she framed it as. But my point is that outside of the United States, Black women in the diaspora have been thinking about the relationship between race and gender um, for decades. And the people that I was bringing up, um, Lelia Gonzalez, Beatriz Nascimento, they wrote for years about the positionality of Black women in Brazilian society, um, the ways that their positionality is made hyper-visible or hyper-invisible, and like the questions that we need to be developing in order to actually confront the issues that Black women face in Brazil. And they had many contemporaries, many of whom are alive today, like Sueli Carnero, um, Jurema Wernacki, um, Marielle Franco's sister, who is like continuing her work through the um, Instituto Marielle Franco, and cadres of like Black feminists who are now in the academy um, in Brazil, who weren't there previously because Black people were incredibly underrepresented. underrepresented now they are penetrating the academy because of affirmative action, thankfully. Um, but I feel like I'm losing my thought. But yeah, it. I'm not going to say that 
they created intersectionality. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that, but like they created their own notions of engaging questions of race and gender. And you see that in the Caribbean too with um oh man, I for Suzanne Césaire, um Sylvia Winter, um many many like Caribbean feminist, many African feminist. Um, like wherever black women are, they are thinking about the questions of race and gender. So I think my point would be, is that we have to think about what allows, what allows there to be a hyper visibility of Crenshaw and Collins work and Davis's work and stature. And it's not to say that it's not deserved because it is. But that it doesn't necessarily bring up the the wealth of work that exists outside of the United States or North America, I should say, the Anglophone North America. Um, and part of that has to do with like the cultural power of the United States. But it also has to do with the fact that a lot of people in the United States are not who are academics may not be bilingual. And so they're not reading people outside of the US who are writing because they're writing in maybe Yoruba or Spanish, Portuguese, Haitian Creole. Um, those works are being translated, being beginning to be translated, but it's a lot of labor to do that. Um, so now enters the question of well what kind of networks can be can we be creating and what kind of incentives can we be creating yes these works need to be translated into english but can we be encouraging um black us feminists to be learning new languages so that's what i have to say about that yeah i think what i really enjoyed about that Twitter thread that you're bringing to people is, is thinking about citation in a capacious way. It was not like in the way that you're doing, it wasn't at all like, as you've, you pointed out, like it wasn't to like say that Crenshaw or Collins or Davis are not worthy of attention, but it's like about a, a plenitude of generosity in terms of attentiveness to, as you say, how black women across the diaspora and in Africa have been always theorizing from their positions um, I'd say another thing, at least uh, within the UK, having to do with the centrality of Black feminism being specifically American has to do in the UK of the disavowal of Blackness as a particularly American thing. And so there's sort of erasure of the work of Claudia Jones, uh, Gil Lewis, and many others who've been there coeval, indeed, even collaborators, accomplices with the same Black fem American Black feminists that cited to so much. And yet there's a way that the the UK Academy, it's it's con more convenient to acknowledge blackness when it's over there, something else that they can feel good about. It's like it's particularly popular, for instance, to talk about the American civil rights movement, I think, in for historians within the UK. But then when you bring up so what happened over here that was equivalent, and that's where these awkward silences begin and people don't want you to point too many fingers and start digging. Yeah, I'm I've been developing a paper 
an article slowly about a similar phenomenon in Brazil. Not quite analogous, but similar enough. And that brings me back to Davis, because Davis actually has gone to Brazil many times. Her books, I think most of her books are translated into Portuguese now. Same with Bell Hooks and um, Collins and Crenshaw's articles. And I was in Sao Paulo the last time she was in Brazil. And basically somebody in the audience had asked her, um, why, what do you have to say about the conditions in Brazil now? And what do you think can, what do you, what type of black women's movement or black feminist movement needs to be created here? And I don't think, I really don't think it was like a black person who asked her this. Um, and she, she said it, she was annoyed, but she said it in a laughing type of way. She was like, I'm kind of sick of this question that I get whenever I come here. Cause you act as if there's no like black Brazilian feminist movement here. And it's existed before I was even writing. And she's like, you would learn a lot more. She was like, I learned more from black Brazilian feminists than I think you could ever learn from me. And she's like, I learned more from Lelia Gonzalez than you could ever learn from me. So I think you should read Lelia Gonzalez. And at that time, her work, Lelia Gonzalez's work, it wasn't being published um, by like the big, um, white-owned um, book companies. It, it, it was being republished by smaller Black Pan-Africanist or Black women's collectives in, like, limited quantities, or it would be posted on the internet. So, like, and these were the same collectives who did the initial translations of Bell Hooks, Davis, Collins, Crenshaw, on their blogs, like there is a group, they're called like Blogueras Negras, who are doing that work. A lot of the women who are now in the academy, as professors in their own right, they were doing that work. Um, and now, let me just get uh, my copies. Hold on. Thank you. And now, their works are being reprinted in by like these big publishers and you can see like the organization or by like these people who were doing that like collective work on the internet in the early 2000s mid 2000s but now they have like the publishing imprints of these big companies so like zahar is um, an imprint of a larger company called Compania das Letras, and they're the biggest, they're the second biggest publisher of books in Brazil. Um, but they're kind of like the prestige um, publisher in Brazil. So, like, they've translated most of Toni Morrison's books. Um, they're trying to publish a lot of like African American like literature in Brazil. And so now there's like this huge market. I mean, there's always been this market, but especially now the publishers are willing 
to provide this market of like black authors, black publishers, but it brings into question like ownership and like, um, is this for the benefit of black people? Um, as consumers, as people who want to know more, or is it for the benefit of um, non-Black people and their investments in like a multicultural type of, um, um, I wouldn't say like nationalism, but like um, a way to like maintain the state as it exists without like necessarily shifting the, the hands of power. Um, because again, as I was saying, most publishing houses in Brazil, they're not black owned. Um, so where are the profits of these book sales going to? They're not going to black communities necessarily. Um, um, but yeah, coming back, it's also like, does the new availability of these black feminist work, is it also creating space for um, people to take black feminist, black feminism in Brazil seriously? Or do they need black American feminist theory as like they're what, well, we already are taking care of like black feminism. So I've been like engaging with Cren or not Crenshaw, Jennifer C. Nash's um, thesis and Black Feminism Reimagined, where she's thinking about the use of intersectionality in universities. And that's also where I'm thinking about it in my article, because there's this been the rise of intersectionality and thinking about it seriously through the academy. But as I was saying previously, now we're hitting a mass of non-white students in the Brazilian Academy in terms of students, but not necessarily like a widespread budging in terms of the faculty composition. So who, what is this for exactly? This engagement of like black feminist theory and intersectionality and like the embrace of diversity, equity, inclusion. Is yeah. it for the basis of actually engaging the student population? Or is it towards the basis of actually transforming the university? And I would say to all of those questions, yes. And then also to all of those questions, no. No, I I see that also, well, manifesting, I guess, everywhere I've been in academia, that I've seen it's much, been much easier for people to finally start citing Black feminists than to hire Black feminists. There's just a mm -hmm. marked difference between I'm sure you can almost imagine this, this being graphed the number of citations to uh, black feminist work versus the hiring being uh, being a very marked divergence and to what extent is the citation rather than being more of a capacious engagement that is not simply just about you know putting certain names and brackets in your footnotes and stuff like that but actually about transforming knowledge production um, and then instead, just again, doing it as a sort of a rote measure as the next sort of professional hurdle, which actually flattens and further like commodifies Black women as a type of intellectual commodity towards a type of capital. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, there is something to be said about the way that 
U.S. Black feminist theory that is has been popularized in Brazil has been utilized because what is being translated are people of the academy. But as we know, like North American Black feminism, especially when we think about it in terms of the diaspora as like a diasporic project, a lot of Black feminist writers were not of the academy. And um, Lelia Gonzalez and Beatriz Nascimento, they were of the academy, but they were very clear about, we will write for multiple publics. And, you know, Lelia Gonzalez, she died while chairing her department. Beatriz Nascimento, she was doing postgraduate study when she was murdered. Um, And yet we are coming back, or I shouldn't say we, the larger public is coming back into consciousness about their positions as academics and as Black feminist theorists in Brazil. like almost 20 years later, even though like black feminist collectives, black feminist um, students have been holding on to their works for since they were dying, Mm. you know? So it's like now the public is catching up, but we have to ask why. Mm -hmm. I guess shifting back to your own work, I was wondering if there's particular moments that you came across in the archive that have stayed with you, maybe for reasons that are particularly emotionally resonant, perhaps joyous. What should we know? Um, okay. Maybe not the question, what should we know? Because I feel like that's like very uh, overdetermined. But yes, I just want to make space for you to to share something that you would like us to know. This isn't necessarily joyful. Because um, I guess it's more about like a barrier, but I did talk about it in my job talk. So I'll bring it up here. Um, One moment was I went to a newspaper archive. And I was speaking with the archivist and I was like, I want these. I'm looking for articles about like black women in domestic service because I want to write about them in my dissertation. And she was like, you're not going to find that in this newspaper. Um, Why, like, they weren't, the journalists weren't talking about that. So why don't you focus more like on the late 20th century or like, the early 21st century when like black women are more visible or you could even go back to slavery. Um, And I was like, I don't know, like, you know, that meme of Tyler, the creator, he's like, okay. (laughs) 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 And I was just like, whatever, I'm going to find this. And um, I came across like a dissertation. The best thing, one of the many best things about Brazil is that best things and like also not great. So the not great thing is that most people do not publish their dissertations. And the humanities, because there aren't a lot of jobs, there are fewer jobs for people who want them in the academy than there are in North America. Wow, that's dark. Um, 
Yeah. So people really, really like put in a lot of effort, like into their dissertations. Um, and I found a dissertation about tabloids, um, like this newspaper tabloid and the way that it represented people who were considered degenerate. Um, and I mean, like degenerate as like the the invocation of the word degenerate. Um, so these groups would include um, houseless people, people who were begging for alms, um, people who were lepers, people who were migrants from the Northeast. Um, because like in Brazil, the Northeast um, is I'm not saying this as in like I believe in the language of development, but considered a more rural, less developed, and more miscegenated population. And so they have been racialized as like poor and backwards, um, mixed race and like um a drain on resources. Um almost to this day. Like that is a part of public discourse to a degree. Um and um, domestic workers. And um, so I read it and I was like, okay, I can find this through tabloids and also through the so-called respectable newspaper and see how they're reporting about um, domestic workers for whom Black women are overrepresented or like a significant portion of the domestic um, work labor force to this day um, and read what they're saying. And so like in the tabloids, they focus on like robberies, like domestic workers stealing things and what they were stealing and why. Um, and also the language that they were having about like domestic workers trying to unionize, it was illegal for them to unionize until 1972. Um, and then it was enshrined in the Constitution in 1988. Was it a general prohibition against unionizing or was it specific to domestic workers? Specific to domestic workers. There was a labor reform law in the, in the 1940s, part of like Brazil's like labor law um, called like the con Consolidation of Work Laws. And it says that um, the right to unionize, the right to have health insurance, the right to holidays, the rights to regular pay, um, apply to everybody except agricultural workers and domestic workers. Yeah, and people who did informal work. And originally in that law, it said they don't count because they don't contribute to the economy. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> oh, Oh, God. Yeah. But here is all of this hysteria. Because also at the same time, there's like a movement of agricultural workers trying to um, gain like land reform rights. Um, and at the same time, there are these domestic workers. And it's like a multiracial movement of women who are like, we need to be able to unionize, we should have holidays, we should have rights to sue our employers to be represented in the labor courts 
um, all of these things. And so you would see a news, not only newspapers, but like in print, like, like life magazine types of um, periodicals where they'd have like these um, spreads about like, oh, the, the, the domestic workers are becoming too, too empowered, too emboldened. And that's going to ruin their, um, ruin their, um, ruin the ability for upper class women to hire domestic workers. Oh, goodness. So <laughs> you have to like stand up against like their efforts to do this. And so much so um, that it's not official, but um, there is. Um, evidence to suggest that Clarice Lispector actually wrote a manual with her sister that instructed like housewives on how to discipline their um, their domestic workers, but like subtly, not explicitly. So the domestic workers refused to be domesticated. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they were getting too uppity. So instead of like you know, beating them or whatever, like try to become your, try to become their friend, have them like, um, have them um, confide in you. And then that will break down their will to like, you try to unionize and ask too much from you. That's so insidious. And I guess it's interesting to bring up the specter because like what she was Ukrainian, but then became a Brazilian novelist. And there's something also about, I guess to me, but it's sort of resonant in this moment about the centering of certain, you know, narratives, voices over others that has to do with, well, around Ukraine and then, then say like the erasure of the international African students and also like South Asian students who have been trying to escape and... Yeah, so it's just really interesting to hear you evoke her and that she wrote this horrendous manual. Yeah, allegedly. Um, okay, okay, allegedly, okay. <laughs> allegedly. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. But like in Brazil, yeah, she was a refugee, but, um, you know, she was able to live a life as an upper class white woman, um, which is very specific. And um, the last time I was in Brazil, that was last November, I went to an exhibit on her and um, another writer, Carolina Maria de Jesus, um, who wrote, her diaries were published. And her first diary, it was called um, Quarto de Despejo. I think in English, it was published as Child of the Dark. And she was a poor black woman, single mother who lived in the favela, um, in favelas in um, Sao Paulo. Technically, in English, people translate favela into like the word slum, but it's more complicated than that. Um, And yeah, she wrote, she became like a star like overnight because um, it the public just took to her as like, oh, it's miraculous that this dark-skinned black woman, single mother, 
semi-literate could read, could write such a work. Um, and she was in the process of publishing her other diaries. Her second diary didn't really um, penetrate the, the reading public um, because within those, the span of the first book and the second book, she had been become somewhat of a pariah and like journalists would make fun of her because they was like, look at this, you know, this poor black woman trying to like live like an upper class woman because she moved up at the favela. She moved into like a lower middle class neighborhood and the city, she would be invited to these events and she was invited to Lee Spector's um, one of her book signings or something, a party for um, the publication of one of her works. And a couple years ago, Benjamin Moser who just did the biography on, um, um, oh, what is her name? Susan Sontag. He had published a book about Clarice Lispector like years ago. And there's a woman who's a writer and a journalist. Her name is Ana Maria Gonzalez. And um, she complained online about Benjamin Moser's um, depiction of that moment because it's in it was photographed and he's like, Oh, and by the Benjamin Moser, he's not Brazilian. He's an American writer. Right. He wrote basically that Clarice Lispector looked, you know, elegant, beautiful. Whereas like Carolina, um, Maria de Jesus looked like out of place. She didn't look nice. She was just like a black woman. And it's important to note, he didn't call her a writer. And it's important to note like the phrasing he used in Portuguese because he just said negra. He didn't, which is like black woman implicitly, but it doesn't have mulher or woman in front of negra. So it's reducing her to like almost like an object, basically. Um and he didn't talk about how she she was the best selling writer that year. Like she beat Clarice Lispector, she beat um, all of these other like people who are known as like being in the canon of like Brazilian literature. Um, so the fact that he relegated her to those words or that characterization, that contrast, um, became a source of controversy once Ana Maria Gonzalez made it public. And he wrote, he was like, I wasn't being racist. That wasn't what I was trying to do. I was just trying to say that she was out of place. But the way that he characterized her was not only that she was out of place and just like a black woman, but he said she looked like a domestic worker. How is that not right? Oh, God. Well, I mean, uh, we have no... I, I Sorry, I just like this by my reaction. Like, It's like what she seems out of place precisely to the kind of person who thinks that she shouldn't be out of the villa she doesn't she shouldn't be at the book launch she shouldn't be on the bestseller list she shouldn't like oh my god yeah and like <laughs> she is coming like her books are being republished by compania das letras the publishing house i was talking about so like she's in a moment of great relevance and like prestige she was given like an honorary doctorate like two years ago 
um, student groups like name their their collectives after her. People have done plays about her. Um, like she's in the moment, but at this um, museum or not museum, like I don't know how to translate it. It's like an archive and a, a exhibit place in general and a um, and a library. So they had one about Clarice Lispector and they had one about um, Carolina Maria de Jesus. And the one on Carolina really focused on like her life and her work and like how her work spoke to like issues of the 60s as well as issues that speak to the contemporary moment. Whereas Clarice Lispector's exhibit was more like abstract focused on interiority which makes sense because her work was about interiority but I liked both exhibits but one thing that I noticed was like even though Carolina published her diaries and her diaries have been republished the public cannot interact with her as somebody who had a private life Mm -hmm. it's about what she represents to people as like a national figure what she has to say about brazil like being a voice for multiple populations women black people single mothers poor people etc whereas clarice doesn't have that burden because of her class because of her race and um her race is not made a point in her exhibit she just gets to be, quote unquote, a universal figure, whereas Carolina is part of a movement to universalize Black women in the polity. Um, so, you know, I, I can see some parallels with, like, the publication of, like, Black Brazilian feminists by these same publishing houses. And again, it's like, we are what labor are we asking them to do as like a throwback to Jennifer C. Nash? And like, why isn't that like white people or at least non-black people? Why don't they have to labor? <laughs> why are these black figures having to do the labor of fixing or diversifying or making more equal Brazil? Yeah, it also makes me think a lot of well, Kevin Quashie's work on the quiet, which for listeners, if you don't know, he he makes the point that like he was specifically looking at Black American aesthetic production, like it always has to be in the mode seen as the mode of like the public in terms of protests. There's not allowed to be moments of quiet. And he here he really credits the work of uh, Black feminists for drawing attention to like there's no space for interiority. There's no place for like. Yes, everything that doesn't have to rise to the level of the political, which is seen as being a certain register of loudness and blackness is always put in that sphere as opposed to all these quiet interior moments. Um, And it also makes me think of like the work of Lisa Lowe, where she talks about how intimacy, we're used to thinking about being the private property of the, the modern individual. But as she points out, like the very conditions of the intimacies for the modern liberal subject came out of the structural intimacies of the entanglements of um, black chattel slavery, indigenous dispossession, and Asian indentured servitude. And that's basically the people who are allowed to have the interiority, allowed to have the 
exhibits or the scholarly attention that has to do with like the, the aesthetic nuances of their work and the exploration of like psychological nuance and so forth get to be white. Whereas when we pay like the usual mode of paying attention to minoritized writers, particularly um, black writers, has to be in relation to the social movement. But it's like that's not 